Would you join me as we pray together? Lord, as we've been singing some of our songs this morning, acknowledging a yearning and a strong desire for you to come. And there was a long period of time, Lord, we know when that was the desire, waiting for the Messiah to come. But we thank you that Jesus, you, the Messiah, have come once in your amazing first advent. As we reflect upon those realities and the promises made and those the responses of those who were there, we pray that we might be, gain insight, Lord, into what you want to teach our own hearts regarding trusting you and learning to trust your promises. And Lord, we pray again as those who have prayed before Christ came the first time. It is our prayer now. Would you come quickly, Lord Jesus, the second time? We look to you as the promise-keeping God so that you might receive all praise and all honor and all glory. And we thank you again for your word. It is true to the generations in the past, to us and our generation now, and to every generation in the future. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. The promise of Jesus' first coming was considered good news, not only by those who received the notification of his coming, but also those who recorded the Gospels. And during the next several weeks, I want to direct our attention and our thoughts about these responses that were made to the promises that Jesus was coming. And I want us to think about this morning the account of Mary. And so I invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 1, the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. We're going to begin reading in verse 26 and read an encounter that Mary had with the angel Gabriel. Luke 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she, who was called barren, is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
My first point this morning I want us to consider is this promise that was given to Mary. To think of it as a radical promise. A radical promise. It was not common everyday occurrence, obviously, for an angel like Gabriel to appear in the town of Nazareth. And so we see under letter A that there's a surprising messenger that's been given here. It means this divine messenger, by the way, whose name means man of God. He entered the home where Mary lived. And obviously, a normal, appropriate reaction is she's highly troubled. She's greatly disturbed at such an event. She's trying to think, who in the world is this man, who appears as a man, standing in her home? Well, he greets her as a woman who's richly blessed. Now, why would a divine messenger consider Mary, of all people at that time, someone who is favored by God? Verse 28. Her response to seeing him and her response to hearing this incredible greeting made her ponder and reflect upon why she was the one receiving this divine favor and why in the world was this angel being sent to her. So there's this surprising messenger who appears in her home saying surprising words. But then notice, secondly, there's a surprising recipient, Mary herself. Let's not, in our minds, make more of Mary than what is presented here because it's very likely that Mary was, as a peasant girl, only between the ages of maybe 12, 13, 14. We're estimating, guessing here, but she was obviously fairly young. She was a resident of this small village in Nazareth, and that time was populated only by a few families, maybe at the most 50 people. And of all the people to whom God would send an angel, Mary was one of the most unlikely people. Even more incredible was that she was told she would conceive and bear a son. Now here she is, verse 27 says, she's a virgin who is betrothed to Joseph. That is, she's promised to marry him. And the promise is so binding that it takes a divorce to actually break that promise. But they've never consummated their marriage. The couple has never been intimate sexually. And so here she is pledged to be married to a carpenter, also from this very small village in Nazareth. And they're both poor. They're both poorly educated. And as a peasant girl, she was likely illiterate. And yet she is chosen by God to receive grace. Take for a moment, let that sink into our thoughts for a moment about how remarkable this encounter is. That here is Mary as a peasant, poor, uneducated, illiterate young woman engaged to be married to some carpenter guy in the same village is receiving the highest commendation a young woman could receive. Verse 30, you have found favor with God. One of the things I hope we'll never lose sight of is that those of us who look and read through the Scriptures and what we learn about the God who has revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ is that God is a grace-giving God. And that whoever is dealing with God is dealing with a God who is filled with grace. If we lose sight of that, my friend, we've lost sight of one of the great, amazing promises that the Scriptures bring to us. Notice that Mary was not chosen because she was more religious or more qualified than another woman. 
She had nothing to commend herself to God. The favor that she received from God in verse 28 is undeserved. Indeed, when you think about the fact that she is so contrary to the way that she is portrayed by so many people who recite their Hail Mary prayers as they think of Mary as a certain way because they've always been taught this is the way Mary is to be thought about. Mary actually wore no crown. Mary was not adorned in a white robe. Mary never sat on a golden throne. And she had no impressive qualifications or credentials. And yet, Gabriel delivered the promise of Jesus' coming to a poor, uneducated, junior high-aged young lady. God chooses the most amazing and unlikely people to grant His grace to. And the same could be said, my friend, of every sinner like you and me here today. It's amazing that we would receive grace from God through Jesus Christ. And God's grace is surprising, my friend. It always operates contrary to human wisdom. Why, Mary? The grace of God. Why you and me would receive good news of a Christ who's come? The grace of God. That leads us to the third surprising thing I want us to consider now when we think about this radical promise. Because it, the, the whole initial communication to Mary is about a surprising conception. The, pri- the promise which Gabriel delivered to Mary included this mind-boggling mystery. As a virgin, Mary would conceive and bear a son, and that son that she would give birth to, she was to name him Jesus, a name obviously which means to save, the one who saves. This son clearly was not going to be an ordinary son, and the conception obviously is not an ordinary conception. And the communication given by Gabriel here is piling on and piling on words and descriptions which are startling, amazing, mind-boggling, And if anybody thinks about it very heavily, your mind just can't seem to fathom it, can't seem to get a a grasp around these kinds of amazing terms and descriptions. Notice a couple of things about what we learn about this son. He's not an ordinary son. Verse 32, he's great. He'll be called the son of the Most High. I thought we just were learning that it's the son of Mary, the lowly, peasant, uneducated, illiterate, junior-aged young woman. And yet this son that she gives birth to. It's doubtful that Mary would have caught all the full implications of these bewildering, perplexing statements. But let's look at it just for a moment. Think about what was being said to her. The terms Gabriel used signaled the uniqueness of her offspring. He would be, number one, truly human. Truly human. Jesus would be born like every other baby. With the exception, some babies now are born C-section. Don't think that was happening in her day. He was born just like every other baby at the time in which he was born. He would need to be breastfed. He would need to have his diapers changed. He would grow. He would develop like other baby boys. Look at verse 52 of chapter 2 in Luke. He would develop and grow in his stature. He would go through a growth spurt just like 
all of us who have gone through those days and years, he would be just like other babies, truly human. And yet it doesn't stop there. Number two, we know that he would also be, verse 35, fully God. Because he's called the Son of God. This divine title indicates that he would be of the same substance as God the Father. As a second member of the Trinity, he possessed the same attributes as God the Father, all the while taking upon himself human nature. Can't seem to get our minds around these things. It's such a huge, amazing concept. And these are the kinds of things that were being spoken to this peasant, uneducated woman. And Luke has done his careful homework as he interviewed her and others, and he tried to re, uh, to depict what was going on at that time, recording exactly what she was told. Notice that indeed, because Jesus was divine, thirdly, we would know that he would be fully sovereign. He is called, verse 32, the Most High God. Now, there are many angelic powers in the world. There are many spiritual forces that are in existence in the heavenly places in the universe, and Jesus would have preeminence and He would have power over all of them. And none would be greater than Jesus. That's quite a statement, wouldn't you say? And added to that, number four, Gabriel insisted that Jesus would be king. Now that's remarkable because it's being spoken to an impoverished, uneducated teenage girl told that she was going to give birth to royalty. To royalty. Jesus would rule from David's throne, indicating that there's a lineage that comes down through the Davidic line. And 2 Samuel chapter 7, which was predicting that there would be one who would rule forever from David's throne, 900, 1,000 years before, here is Jesus promising in this text that He is going to establish His kingdom, reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, And this little baby was described as one who would reign forever. Number five, that means he would be eternal. He existed before his birth and he will exist eternally as king over his never-ending kingdom. And lastly, we learn from Gabriel that Jesus would, number six, he would be sinless. He would not inherit the sin nature like every other descendant of Adam and Eve, all of us, including Mary, including me and you and all of us, we have entered the world with a fallen sin nature. No one had to teach us to do wrong. We do it naturally. And Jesus would be an exception to that universal pattern. Look at verse 35. He would be the holy child, or he would be the holy offspring. No wonder Mary was to name him Jesus, Yeshua. No wonder he was to be named the one who was the only sovereign, supreme um, king of kings and who alone was able to save the lost, save those in bondage, and save those who were in desperate need of a changed heart. Now, how are you going to respond to that? How do you respond to that? Well, notice Mary's response to this promise that I'm sure was far broader and deeper than she could possibly have imagined or fathomed on that occasion. Her response was understandable when she says, how shall or how can this be since I have never known a man? She's stuck on that point. 
We're talking about a conception here. We're talking about a baby. We're talking about the fact that I've never been intimate sexually with a man. It's a good question, wouldn't you say? It means that she is tuning in. She's understanding what's being said to her on some level, and she's stuck at that point. And so she asked the question, and this is important, verse 45. She asked the question in faith. She's not dismissing this and saying, no way. Forget it. It's not going to happen. Because I've never been with a man. She doesn't say that. She's saying, how can this be? She raises a question in her humble faith. She is sincerely baffled as to how this promise could come true because she's never had sex with anyone, not with, even with Joseph, to whom she's pledged to be married. I don't know about you, but I think it's fair to say in that time, in that era of history, that virgins were not known to have babies. It's possible with the complicated uh, medical procedures they have today, that can happen. But back in that day, virgins were not known to have babies. And so it's not wrong for her to ponder this puzzling promise. And that's what she's doing. She's asking sincere questions while she's investigating the profound promises that God says. And that is not contrary to faith. Matter of fact, when you ask questions humbly, it means you very likely are on a path on which many of us have walked. We have had those questions we've raised about, what does this mean? How could that be? We've asked questions of Scripture as we've read it through. And it's a path that many of us continue to walk on. We still have many questions that we ask, even though we are people of faith. And when asked with a sincere, humble attitude and a desire to be taught, Jesus welcomes people with questions. Jesus welcomes people who have questions. Wrestling with questions is not necessarily antithetical to faith. Faith does not require that every question be answered. Indeed, when you think about it, trusting in the one who's giving the promises means there's a lot of things I don't know. It all goes back to trusting the character of that person. I think back to the time in which I proposed marriage to my wife, Joyce. Um, It was in 1980. And when I asked her to marry me, had she asked me at the time, where are we going to live and what will life look like 30 years from now? I couldn't have answered that question. Never thought I'd be here. Matter of fact, if she would have asked me that question, she would not have known and I would not have known that she would have lived in a mobile home in Chicago area for a period of time. Not the most promising place to live, I assure you, but we were thankful to have it. I wouldn't have been able to promise her that, that uh, unforeseen for us, living with life with me, that there would be a time of sadness over miscarriage. There would be times in our lives where we then would move from place to place, and then somehow God would lead us to settle on seven acres in a nice big home. Here in Lake Grove. Now I couldn't have given her all those answers to any questions she asked me about where and the when and how long and what will look like. I couldn't paint that picture. But I'm deeply thankful when she I asked her to marry me, she said yes. Because she was trusting in my commitment to say, I'm devoted to you till death do us part. 
no matter what life looks like, no matter where that takes us. In some ways, this is what we see going on here, that faith similarly encourages and challenges us to say, who's the one making the promises here? We don't see everything clearly. We see through a dark glass dimly, the Scripture says. And the questions that people even like Job asked, and he had a long list of questions. Those questions were answered with what? With lots of other questions that came right back to him. Where were you, Job, when I made this? Where were you, Job, when the mountains were put together? Where were you, Job, when I put the atmosphere together? Where were you, Job, when I filled up the oceans with all the creatures? Where were you, Job? And the questions came at him time and time and time again. Essentially saying, Job, can you fathom all of the things that have to do with God? Answer, no. So many of us who don't know very much, we can know some things. We can know what God has revealed to us in His Word as He reveals it to us through the Holy Spirit. And many of us know much more than Mary did. And the challenge for us is to believe what we've been taught and what we read as far as we understand it. And to humble ourselves before the God who has revealed Himself and made those promises. God made a radical promise. And Mary said, hey, i got a couple questions. got a couple questions for you. But her faith led forth inappropriate questions. Look secondly now at the Additional point I want to add here. Not only was there a radical promise made, but notice there was a reassuring promise that followed that. Particularly noting 37. The answer starts in verse 35. When uh, Mary, her response to Gabriel's uh, promise is, how can this be? Notice that the answer to that question, verse 35 and 36, is essentially, to sum it all down, it means there's going to be a miraculous intervention by God the Spirit. That's, what, that's the answer to your question, Mary. He goes on to say, verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Mary would conceive this unique one-of-a-kind baby through the involvement of the Holy Spirit. And the man to whom she was betrothed, Joseph, would not be the biological father. That's what this angelic response is helping her understand. Jesus' body, according to Hebrews chapter 10, would be prepared by the Spirit of God. And Gabriel provided another outrageous comment there in verse 35 when he alludes to this overshadowing activity of the Holy Spirit. I believe, and I'm not sure Mary would have picked it up at the time, but there's some very interesting terminology when he says it that way, that anyone who's familiar with some of the things that have been taught by Brother Macero here in the Sunday school class about what was going on there in the tabernacle, clearly there's an allusion to the Shekinah glory that was stationed over the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus 25. And the echo of that kind of depiction of the Spirit of God alluding to the Shekinah glory essentially suggests that Mary's womb would in some sense become the Holy of Holies for the Son of God. 
Now, having made that bold, outrageous statement again, notice how God now gives reassurance to what He's going to do here. He's going to undergird her faith to encourage her to trust God and to be confident of these mysterious workings of the Holy Spirit. Notice what Gabriel does. Verse 36, 35 and 36. 36. He reminds Mary of the miraculous pregnancy that her relative Elizabeth is now enjoying. Gabriel urged Mary to behold Take a moment, think, ponder, look at Elizabeth. She's in her sixth month. And there are outward visible evidences of God's power shown clearly in her life. And Elizabeth, seeing her in her second trimester, is meant to undergird the faith of Mary. And no one would have thought that Elizabeth ever could have conceived. Because we know that Elizabeth and her husband, Zacharias, both were, verse 7 of the same chapter, chapter 1, they were advanced in years. means that they were so elderly that the idea of bearing children was long gone. And Gabriel's comment was meant to be an argument from the lesser to the greater. What he's saying is, if God can bring about a miraculous pregnancy for an elderly couple who have been intimate throughout their married life, and yet after decades have been unable to conceive... Now that they're married, I mean, now that they're pregnant, she's pregnant, he says, then God, if God can do that, then God clearly can do this. Where he's going to, by the Spirit, absolutely capable of conceiving a child in your womb, Mary. In order to encourage and reinforce faith, notice what Gabriel added in verse 37. I hope you have this underlined in your Bible. It's okay to underline in your Bible. It's not a problem with that. Nothing will be impossible with God. Why is that statement made? Why would Gabriel take the time to spell that out? Because he's trying to build a basis for faith and trust in a kind of promise that's being given to Mary. With merely a spoken word, God, let's be reminded now, brought into existence everything that is in existence. God is the person who can enter His own creation in the person of Jesus Christ. God is the God who can forgive our sins through the work of Christ on the cross and through His powerful resurrection from the dead. It is God who can transform those who are dead in sin, make them alive in Christ. It is God who can break down the walls of adversity and unite those who normally and naturally would be enemies. God is the God of the impossible. God is able to do whatever He pleases. Psalm 115, Job 42. Job 42 saying, No purpose of yours can be thwarted. And I love the confident expressions of faith that Jeremiah wrote as he echoes similar kinds of themes at one of the darkest periods of time for the people of God. Jeremiah wrote when things were very gloomy. Things were not going well at all. The world had fallen apart as far as a Jew is concerned regarding the promises of God, regarding Jerusalem and being destroyed and torn down. And God, through his prophet Jeremiah, who was very unpopular, his messages were not well received. He says, listen here, I've got a word for you. Things are going to be rebuilt. Things are going to get better. 
In order to affirm that, turn in your Bible to Jeremiah 32. Just take a moment and look at Jeremiah 32. Against the backdrop of the destruction of Jerusalem, against the backdrop of the destruction of the temple and the walls being torn down and, and all the things that the, Jew, the Jewish people had one time celebrated and thought this is the most glorious place in all the earth is now in ruins and crumbled. I want you to look at this, what God is doing to try to establish faith and trust in His people. He says in verse 17, chapter 32, verse 17 of Jeremiah, Ah, Lord God, behold, You have made the heavens and the earth by Your great power and by Your outstretched arm. Nothing. I think that's what my translation said. Does yours say some things? Mine, mine says nothing. Nothing is too difficult for you. Why is God making that statement through Jeremiah? They didn't want to hear it, but he's saying, don't forget the power of God. You say, okay, well, is there more? Another underline of that? Is there more reinforcement? Just skip down to verse 26. Ten verses later. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am Jehovah. I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? The answer, of course not. He can do anything. So my question to you is, how would you answer that question? Is anything too difficult for God who's at work in your life? Do you believe such statements given to you that God is able to do whatever He chooses? Verse 37 of Luke chapter 1, nothing will be impossible with God. Do you believe that? Do you view God as weak and impotent? Or do you view God as the mighty God, the Creator God, who does the impossible? When you hear that God sent forth His Son to be born of a woman, and you hear the kind of message that this woman received from Gabriel, the angelic messenger, do you have full confidence that God indeed does the impossible and that He's worthy of your trust? Because that's what the real point of that message was to Mary. Trust me. Trust the God who's bringing you this message he can accomplish these things. You say, well, how, how can I know if I really am trusting Him? What will be the evidence or what will be the fruit of a, a heart that says, I do trust that God is powerful, that God can do whatever He wants? Let's look at t- number three, a response of surrender to the promise. Look what Mary does in verse 38. Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. Don't you love that? Mary knows exactly who she is. She's not some high, high and mighty person who's wearing a, a, a golden crown and wearing white robes and looking so impressed. She says, I'm just a lowly, lowly servant slave. And she says in verse 38, be it done to me according to your word. Mary's response is simple, humble faith that says, I surrender. She didn't have everything spelled out. She didn't have all the details clearly explained. 
But she responded to the revelation that was given to her in unreserved, unqualified submission and trust. She doesn't say, well, yeah, I'm going to go with this plan if you do this, this, and this. If you'll make sure that this works out over here. If you have... She doesn't have all those qualifiers on her submission. She says, verse 38, Be it done to me, as you've said. Be it done to me. Now you say, well, that's commendable. Yeah, I don't think we realize how commendable it was. Because in taking God at His word, she is laying aside her plans. She was planning on a wedding, folks. She was planning on a wedding. Uh, when do girls start planning their weddings? I thought it was when they're pretty young. She had an agenda here. She's sort of begun to see what life's going to look like for her. She's already figuring out what life was going to sort of look like for the next years. She had a, an agenda. Her simple life, she's going to have to lay all that side. Why? Because when she welcomes this plan, it is an inconvenient now, unexpected interruption of her agenda. Mary faced now a life in which she is going to deal with, on a regular basis, ridicule, whispering behind her back. She's going to deal with people who deal, uh, look at her and can't help but see her in the context of a scandalous, out-of-wedlock pregnancy. And despite her sexual purity, despite her honorable devotion to her fiancé, quote-unquote, Joseph, Mary faced a lifetime of shame and embarrassment along with Joseph and her family. She would have to live with questions and innuendos and allegations that she was a tramp, that she was a slut probably, they used some kind of generic terminology to say those kind of things, that she was an unfaithful woman. That's what she had to live with in a society that was highly sensitive to shame-related issues. And in responding the way she did, Mary made it clear that she was not going to idolize her marriage. She was not going to, because she's going to have to probably be divorced from Joseph. She's probably aware that he's going to have to sort of say, okay, well, that's it with us. I'm going to formally divorce you and send you away because she's going to be pregnant even before they're married. And, and, he, and also the idolizing she has to say, I'm going to give up any kind of idolizing the approval and what other people think of me. I'm going to lay that on the altar and I'm going to trust the God who's calling me, who's promised me these things. She's willing to let God write the script of her life. That's what faith looks like, my friend. We say, I surrender, Lord. I'm willing to do your agenda. I'm willing to live my life according to your script. I'm going to lay my things aside here. We should not view Mary as a person who is an object of our faith. We should not view Mary as an object of our veneration or of our intercession because Mary clearly here is presented as a wonderful, compelling example of simple, surrendered trust in God. And I love to contrast how Mary responded to how another great woman of the uh, Jewish ancestry responded. It takes me back to Genesis chapter 18. And here we have the story of Abraham and Sarah. Now, Abraham and Sarah similarly 
have got some issues going on here regarding this idea of bearing children. And Abram and Sarah are told that Sarah is going to conceive and bear a child. Even though they were told in verse 11 of chapter 18 in Genesis that Sarah was old, she was advanced in age, she's past childbearing. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. So what is Sarah's response to the promise, the impossible is going to happen in your life? I love this. We read in Genesis chapter 18, verse 12, that Sarah hears what's being told by an angelic messenger, a person that's appeared in the, in the, they appear looking like a person, and they're speaking to Abraham, and she's behind the tent of the curtain, and she's listening to everything. And here's that, and then she says, or she responds, <laughs> she starts laughing. She's laughing to herself, like, you've got to be kidding me. Isn't that the honest truth about how many of us think of how God works the impossible? We laugh. We say, you've got to be kidding. But after noting the response of laughter, the angel of the Lord reiterated this important question, which again I see is coming right here, connecting with what was going on with Mary. The question comes back, verse 14 of Genesis 18, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Are you going to laugh at the one who's promising to do this impossible? Guess what? Just to fast forward through the story, I know you're like, why are you going into Sarah? I'm telling you why. It's because you fast forward through her life. She did conceive. She did bear a son. And guess what his name was? Who knows his name? Isaac. Who knows what Isaac means? Laughter. He laughs. I'm not sure who's laughing here. I think his parents were laughing. I think God sort of chuckled at the whole idea of the irony of all these things. But there's laughter as a reminder. Every time you hear the name Isaac, it's a reminder of the initial response that, that, that Sarah had to the impossible promises of God, to God who will do the possible. And I look at this and I say, okay, what did Mary say? Mary said, behold, the bondservant of the Lord, may it be done to me according to what you've said. I'm banking on what you've said. So I want to raise the question among us today. What's your response to when God rewrites the script of your life? Do you try to invest a great deal of energy and a lot of your time trying to persuade God to bless your plans? Trying to bring about your own agenda? Or does the script of your life include room for God's interruptions? For God's agenda? You say, well, you don't know my life. My life is a train wreck. I said, well, wait a minute. Isn't that what Mary's life began to look like for a while? A train wreck. And she said, be it done to me. Be it done to me. You say, well, how can Mary have such faith? Didn't she struggle? Yeah, Mary was trying to work it through. She was not a person who fully understood it, engaged the whole thing. But guess what? Mary thought her life was headed off the tracks. And little by little throughout the little glimpses we have of her life, which are given only in short little uh, snapshots, we know that Mary, along the way, learned to treasure the promises of God that were given to her. We read in Scripture, even chapter 2 of Luke, verse 19, verse 51, it repeats the fact that Mary treasures these things. She ponders these things. She's still trying to think it through what God is doing. Her faith is growing, and she's learning to try to trust God in the midst of what looks like craziness in her life. 
But Mary celebrated the unmerited favor of God bestowed upon her. Not only was she privileged to raise and bear the incarnate Son of God, but she also raised other children, contrary to a popular teaching about Mary by those who put such veneration upon her. She did have other, bore other children by Joseph, uh, sons and daughters. Two of those sons went on later to be the authors of New Testament writings and who also died as martyrs for the cause of Christ. You think Mary's life was easy? It wasn't easy. Do you think she felt blessed? Do you think she was amazed at the grace of God? I guarantee it. My heart yearns for all of our hearts to be amazed afresh at the grace of God. Grace of God that gives us promises that leads us to say what? I yield, I submit, I surrender to you, Lord. Do with me as you will. As you have promised in your word, make it happen in my life. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, God of the impossible, we know, at least in our minds, and I pray, O oh Lord, in our hearts, we would all come to the point where we believe there's nothing too difficult for you. Lord, I thank you that you are the God who can make alive those who are spiritually dead. You're the God who can make a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. You're the God who can take anger and hatred and bitterness and melt it away to love, kindness, and gentleness, gentle spirit. <clears throat> I thank you, Lord, that you are the God who does the impossible of taking people who are anxious and fearful and self-absorbed, and you can change them to be people who are calm, who are peaceful, and who are concerned and willing to sacrifice themselves for others around them and for the kingdom of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts, that you would give us the gift of faith, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would help us understand, Lord, you are the promise keeper. And I pray, Lord, it would result in our being willing to sacrifice our agenda to let you rewrite the script of our lives, to say, Lord, take the train wreck of my life and you make it into something that will show the greatness of your grace and your goodness to those around us. Lord, I pray that you might teach us today to be able to say along with Mary, be it done to me as you have said according to your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God who can do the impossible. Do it among us, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen.